You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Well, good morning. It's good to be back together with you all. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas and New Year's, a restful break, a chance to be with family and friends, to lay down your responsibilities and be recovered. I, I applaud all of you for returning to campus in the midst of this horrible cold and snow. It has been nasty. I mean, <clears throat> at least though it's snowy, right? If it's going to be cold, it might as well be snowy. Might as well be able to look out our windows and be reminded that outside is not our friend right now and we shouldn't go there, right? It's great to be have you back on campus. We are thankful to have you back. It's exci- I'm excited to see people again on campus. There's, it's, it's great to see humans on campus. Like This place is strange without you all. Uh, it's like a ghost town around here. It's been great to see people walking campus, buses full, campus gym full again. So we're excited to have you back. Well, I hope you had a chance to study your passage in your small group this week. Uh, if you haven't, that's all right, because now is the time in our service where we're going to do that. We're going to dig in together. We're going to do a Bible study. I love this part of our week. I love getting a chance to dig into God's Word with you and see what He has for us. I won't tired of saying that. You're going to hear me say it again. I love studying the Word of God with you. Well, this semester, we are going to be anchored in the book of Ephesians. We'll take it in two parts. Part one will be these first four weeks where we'll focus on uh, where we'll focus on the first half of the book. Then, as we prepare for Easter in the season of Lent, we'll take some time to uh, f- to read some psalms together and to prepare our hearts for Easter. And then we'll celebrate Easter together when we return back to the second half of Ephesians, part two, covering the final four weeks of the semester before Celebration Sunday in May. And when I put it that way, it just sounds so short, like the semester is going to be gone in a blink of an eye. And we know that it will because it goes by quickly here. So let's get started. Let's get into it. Today, as we begin our study of Ephesians, I want to give you a brief overview of the book and the framework to work within as you do your personal study in small groups each week. Now, if you've been around here for a minute, you know that this is a place where I can get off the rails, where I could take too long. I could get into the depth of the background and and explaining things. And I've promised the staff and the elders that I will keep this brief. So here we go. I'm going to try to do it. As the book of Ephesians, it's a short six chapter book in the New Testament, but it punches well above its weight class, given the depth and fullness of the theology and praxis it offers us. As best we can tell, the apostle Paul wrote it during his prison stay in Rome mentioned in Acts chapter 28, the end of Acts. You can read it there. Among the other letters written during this time are Colossians, Philippians, Philemon. Often we call these the prison epistles. They were the letters Paul wrote when he was imprisoned in Rome. Now, Paul and his fellow missionaries, they spent a lot of time in Ephesus during their, the third missionary journey, which is accounted for in the book of Acts chapter 19. You can read about it there if you want to get more context. This is who they're writing to. The missionaries, they were there for about two years, teaching and equipping the new believers and establishing the church. Now, just a handful of years later, Paul writes to them from prison to encourage and direct them, to help shape and encourage them as a church. That's the letter we have in our Bibles called Ephesians. As a whole, the book of Ephesians is all about the nature and structure of the church, the nature of salvation and how we ought to live in light of that as saved people. 
In the book, Paul summarizes the gospel message, God's plan from the foundation of creation until the end of time. And he instructs us how we should live in light of that, or how the knowledge of God's plan should shape the way we live. And you know, I I like to do this just to offer you a uh, visual of the book. This book divides neatly into two parts. Chapters one through three are deeply theological and offer a summary of the gospel, God's plan to redeem all creation. Now, the second half of the book, chapters four through six, offers instructions for our lives in light of the gospel. You could think of the first half of the book as as a lengthy, eloquent prayer for the life of the church, punctuated with the blessing and benefits we enjoy as those who have embraced Christ. The second half of the book offers specific pictures of what oneness in Christ looks like. Paul reminds us that we are one body, that there is one baptism in Christ, one faith and one God and Father of all. Unity in Christ is a central theme in the book. In fact, in fact, I would argue that Ephesians 1.10 is the theme verse of the entire book. God's plan has always been to unite all things in Christ, and he has been working that out since the foundation of creation. With that, let's consider our first passage from the book. We're skipping the formal address and jumping right in at verse 3. We'll go to the end of the chapter. Here we're going to see a beautiful explanation of God's redemptive plan a moving poem followed by a prayer that we would understand all that God has done for us. Which if you're reading our passage, you know we need a lot of prayer to understand this, right? I mean, I have needed a lot of prayer to understand this. I've been praying all week asking God, why have you laid it on my heart to preach through this book? It's a lot to grasp, a lot to wrap our minds around. Now, I'm joking, obviously. This, this book, uh, I love it, and I've returned here for years in my quiet times. As a young believer in high school, it fascinated me and drew me into deeper worship and trying to grasp the depths of the gospel. I hope it does the same for you as well, just as it continues to do for me all these years later. Let's get pulled in by the beauty of the gospel as we study Ephesians. As we dig into chapter 1, today we're going to see God's intentional design in the work of redeeming creation. We're going to see God's plan for salvation was not by accident. He he wasn't caught off guard when Adam and Eve sinned, right? Like, oh, I'm surprised. What am I supposed to do now, right? He didn't have to scramble to find a fix. No, not even close. If you remember nothing else from today, remember that God purposefully planned to save us through Jesus from the foundation of creation. God purposed to save us through Christ. That's what we're going to see in our passage today. Let's take a look at our passage and see how that unfolds. We're going to look at most of chapter 1. We'll tackle that, this passage in two main parts. Part 1 shows us God's work, covered in verses 3 through 14, followed by part 2, which is we might think of as our work, or a prayer, is, is covered in, in 15 through 23. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If not, uh, we'll have the verses up on the screen as usual. I teach from the ESV if that helps you follow along. You don't have to use any translation in particular. There's a lot of great Bible translations out there. ESV is what I prefer to teach from. Here, the first dozen verses or so of the passage, you're going to see Paul summarize the amazing work of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at work in saving us and restoring all creation. Let's read. 
Blessed be the Father and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, even having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Wow, that's a mouthful, right? A ton to hold in your brain at once. There's a lot going on here. What we just read is one sentence in the original Greek. That's why it's hard to hold together. It's hard to piece it apart because it's all one flowing, continuous thought. If you pick up a scholarly book on this passage, or maybe in your study Bible, you'll see a note. You might see this, these verses referred to as a doxology. That's a fancy word, a theological word, uh, referring to a short hymn or verses praising God and giving him glory. And that is what this passage is. It's praise and glory to God. So whatever landmines theologically you might feel like we are stepping on, realize this is about God and his glory, not me and my theological positions or yours, what theological camps we fall in. This is why Paul starts with blessings to God and the Father who blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That's the opening because he's going to explain God's blessings in our lives and all creation and praise God for the remainder of this long sentence. While these verses can be hard to tease apart, our modern English translations have done their best. They've inserted commas and periods and dashes to help mark off the shifts in the thought and show us its flow. I would propose to you that the key to wrapping your head around this is seeing the Trinitarian framework Paul works with. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are present here, all working together to accomplish their purpose. Right, verses 4 through 6, they showcase God the Father at work through election, choosing a people for himself. Verses 7 through 12 showcase redemption through the blood of Christ. Verses 13 through 14 showcase the sealing of the Holy Spirit, assuring salvation for those who believe. Let's take a look at these verses each and see, how, see them more clearly. Let's unpack them each a little bit more. So 4 through 6, even as God the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. 
to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world to be made righteous before him through Christ. He predestined to adopt us as sons and daughters in Christ to accomplish his purpose and will. This is for God's glory. I know from discussions this week and from talking with many of you, uh, more than a few people are confused and even uncomfortable with this reality. It's not an easy truth to grasp or accept, especially for us Americans. We like to think about and advocate for our freedoms and others' freedoms. We are free people. We make our own choices. Don't we choose God? This seems to be saying he chooses us. Before the foundations of the earth, he chose us. Now, to confuse it even maybe a little bit more, just a few verses from here, uh, in verse 13, Paul will recount how you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Hearing and believing sounds like human action and reaction, human will in believing. This is the great challenge. I would, make, I, would, I would argue scripture makes it abundantly clear that God chooses whom he saves. Yet we are responsible for our response to the gospel. Those truths have baffled believers from as long as the church has been established. It's not a perfect analogy, but, but let me offer this as a matter of perspective, a way maybe of wrapping our minds around it. In our finite minds, we can only see in two dimensions, right? We have a perspective that tells us that this object, that this object I'm holding is a circle, right? And so, yeah, Nick, that's a circle. It's, it's round. It's, it's a circle. And then we have a completely, potentially completely different shape that appears in two dimensions as a rectangle. And you say, yeah, that's a rectangle. That's right. It's got four sides, two of them longer than the other, right angles, rectangle. Yet God, in his infiniteness, says, no, it's actually a cylinder. It's, it's both a circle and a rectangle at the same time, and yet neither of them either. It's something different. It's something else. I think far too often our confusion around God choosing is a matter of limited perspective. Right? We, we argue over free will or predestination, and it's really probably we lack the, the understanding or the dimension to really wrap our brains around it. What I mean by this is from our human perspective, we hear the gospel and respond with faith and it feels like our choice. It seems like we made a decision to follow Jesus. We say, that's a circle. We responded. Or maybe from a different standpoint, you can think about, uh, maybe you grew up in a Christian home. And for as long as you can remember, you've been to church and believed in Jesus because that's what you've always done. You didn't have a choice of the family you were born in or what, what they believed or have taught you. You followed Jesus because that's what you were taught to do and what you've always done. It's a rectangle. You were just born into it. But, but from God's perspective, he placed you on this campus with the roommate who invited you to Bible study. He raised hard questions in your mind that challenged your worldview and made you rethink rethink things, things you weren't able to answer from your perspective. He let you reach the limits of trying to be perfect and failing 
He revealed bits of truth about himself to you through his created order and his followers and, and everything around you, pointers to him. All, all of it, so that when you sat across the table from your friend at Espresso Royal and, and he told you about Jesus, you had no choice but to believe because it made all the sense in the world at that point. There was no other explanation. It has to be true. That's the cylinder. That's God's intervention in drawing you and saving you. That's the sovereign work of God. The point is this. The all-powerful God of the universe, the creator of everything that exists, saw fit to orchestrate that you would be his. His love for you is that great. So great that he chooses you. And I would suggest this is always how love works. It is exclusive. It is choosy. If it's not, it's not really love. I, I have a, a special relationship with my wife, a relationship we have chosen not to have with anyone else, right? It's a, it's a special relationship. We were married. God has made us one flesh. He's made us one. My wife, Amy, she knows me better than anyone else ever will. And despite my thick-headedness and insensitivities, hopefully I know her better than anyone else ever will, right? In love, we choose to forsake all others. So it is with God. He chooses us. Otherwise, it's not really loving. Love is exclusive by design. Let me put it a different way. We see this all throughout Scripture in how God has chosen to interact with his creation. God chose Noah to let all others perish during the flood. Abraham was chosen to be the father of God's people. Before they were born and had done anything, he chose Jacob over Esau. Before they were even a nation that existed, God chose Israel to be his family and a light to the world. He chose Moses to speak to Pharaoh and lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. He chose the prophets to be his mouthpiece to a wicked and unrepentant generation. He chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus. Jesus chose the disciples. He chose Paul to be a missionary to the Gentiles. God chooses who and how to carry out his purposes in his creation. God purposefully planned to save us through Jesus. We see that in God the Father choosing to save us through election by God the Father, his will and purpose advance. In response, we love him back and forsake all others, worshiping and glorifying him alone. Let's look at the next few verses to see the work of Jesus in our salvation. Picking up in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavishes upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the, the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ at the, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Through the blood of Christ we have been redeemed, our sins forgiven, 
And this is based on the incredible grace of God. Grace he so generously pours out on us that is extravagant. It's overwhelming. Someone told me this week that the, the grace of God is so extra, which I, I don't even know if I'm using correctly, but probably using it wrong. But, but I think you get the point, right? Paul calls it lavish grace. It's overflowing. It's abundant. It's, it's overwhelming. Through that grace, we've been brought into God's great plan to reconcile all things, to restore all of creation, to reunite the created order in Christ. All things in heaven and earth have been purposed to work together for the glory of God and in Christ have, they will once again work together for his purpose. In Christ, we have been promised a role in that reality. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of the king. We have a stake in the kingdom of God, a role to play, a place to call our own. That's what Paul is saying here. The blood of Christ makes you clean and whole again, returning you to God's intended purpose for your life in his creation, to praise and glorify him. God purposefully planned to save us through Jesus. We see that in the blood of Christ redeeming us, washing away our sins and making us whole again, all because of the grace of God. Through redemption in Christ, his will and purpose advance. In response, we walk in that grace and live as redeemed people, holy and pleasing to God. Let's look at the last few verses of the doxology before we wrap up uh, this part and uh, end with the prayer that follows. As the doxology wraps up, the work of the Holy Spirit it's fr- is the work of the Holy Spirit is front and center for us. Let's read and see the work of the Spirit. Picking up back in 13. In him you also when you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's helpful here to, to note the difference in pronouns. Now, not in the way our society talks about pronouns now, but up until this point, Paul has been using inclusive pronouns, us and we. Now he shifts and he's using you and your distancing other group pronouns. What is happening here becomes much more clear as you read on in the letter and you see Paul address God's plan to include Gentiles, non-Jews, into the family of God. In Christ, all people are united into the family of God rather than exclusively those of Jewish, Jewish ethnicity and practice. It's as if... So far, Paul has been appealing to the well-known and accepted truths of those like him who are Jewish and following Jesus. God chose them as a people group to be his family and has worked out his plan of salvation through Jesus, a Jew. Now those outside the Jewish family are hearing about Jesus and they're believing and being saved. They were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit just like the Jewish believers were at the day of Pentecost, just like all believers are. The Holy Spirit lives inside you if you have been adopted as a son or daughter of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ. If you have faith in Christ, trusting in him alone for your salvation, you have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guarantees your salvation will be carried on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus' return. We are sealed. We're guaranteed. The Holy Spirit 
lives in us and illuminates the scriptures to us. It opens our minds. It reveals God's work in our lives. It nudges and guides and speaks to us to to conform our will to God's will. It carries us forward in God's purposes, accomplishing his will and enacting it, his will in us and through us. God purposefully planned to save us through Jesus. We see that in the sealing of our salvation in the Holy Spirit, God indwelling us to guide us and help us. Through the Holy Spirit, his will and purpose advance. In response, we yield and cooperate with the Spirit's work in our lives, giving praise and glory to God for being with us and carrying our salvation to completion. As we wrap up that section, the first half, let's briefly look at the close of the chapter where Paul offers a prayer following this immense truth bomb he just threw at us, right? We just worked through. If the previous verses outlined God's work in salvation, we can think of these next ones as outlining our response. It might be a way of thinking about it. It's, it's a prayer. So let's read. For this reason, picking up in 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might." That, we, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This Two is one long Greek sentence. So again, it can be hard to hold it all in our brains at once. And likewise, challenging to break apart. The core of the message here is Paul tells us the response to the truth he has just revealed is to give thanks and pray. That these blessings, pray that these pray that these blessings will be fully realized in our lives, that we'll fully grasp them. That salvation would be lived and understood, experienced for us as believers. A lived experience. He's praying here that we would have a deeper understanding of God's plan and salvation and, plan, and our place within that plan. A deeper understanding of God's work in our lives. The primary ask here is for wisdom and revelation, that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes and hearts and enlighten us, that enlightenment would would yield understanding of God's grace and work in our lives and fill us with hope. That enlightenment would show us the greatness and the mightiness and power of God. Paul goes on to restate those truths about God recalling the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, crowning him Lord of all, uniting all things under him. Specifically, uniting a body of one people, one family, the church, with Christ as our head. All this implies our response in understanding God's plan for salvation and our place within the plan is to be the body of Christ 
and manifest him to the world around us. So in light of our salvation, we give thanks, we pray for deeper understanding, and we stand united as the body of Christ to show him to the world around us. Because God purposely planned to save us through Jesus, and our response is to give thanks, to pray for understanding, and to be the body of Christ. And so this morning, we've unpacked just two sentences. Two sentences is all we've accomplished. The first very deeply theological building sentence revealed God's intention and purpose to work work out salvation, uniting all things in heaven and earth in Christ. Calling, adopting, redeeming, preserving those he desires to carry forth his purposeful plan for his glory and praise. The second sentence is a prayer of response, offering encouragement to give thanks ask for deeper understanding and affirming us as the body of Christ, a light to the world around us. In these two sentences, in these two sentences, we see that God purposefully planned to restore all creation through Jesus. He planned to save us, to redeem us through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and secure us with the Holy Spirit making its home inside us. So in closing, we offer a challenge or a call to us to respond. Alane life, having been chosen by God, adopted into his family, redeemed by the blood of Christ, and sealed for salvation by the Holy Spirit. Let us praise God for his immeasurable greatness, goodness, and grace, and live united as one body. Will you pray with me?